The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House, the place where we get the chance to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders on the planet. On today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Brian Duffin, OBE, who has a reputation for being one of the leading insurance executives in the UK. Welcome to the show, Brian. Very pleased to be here. Brian, we're, we're absolutely privileged to have you on the show today. I'm really looking forward to discussing your career and some of the insights that you might have for some of our listeners today. Brian, if we can just start off with uh, talking a little bit about your your background. I know you've had a, a very successful career as an executive, which culminated in your time as the chief executive of Scottish Life, which then, then merged with Royal London. Gone on since then to, to have a, a portfolio career as a non-executive director. I think it'd be great for our listeners to, to learn some more about that. But before we go on to that, if we could start off with your time at Scottish Life and perhaps you could give us a little bit more background about that time in your career and the achievements during that stage. Okay, no problem. Um, a period looking after the servicing for Scottish Life, administration, policyholder, servicing, before the general manager at the time retired and there was a contest organised by the, the board both to look at external candidates and to look at internal candidates and I was appointed in 1998 to take over at the end of that year as chief general manager. The company not only had its UK business, it also had an international business. We were also offering servicing of pension schemes on their own with our insurance basis. So it was a bit of a group of companies. But when I took over and got my new team around me, uh, we all realised that the world was changing pretty fast. And that as a mutual company, capital could be a problem going forward. We already knew that, for example, things like stakeholder pensions had come in and that was putting pressure on, on, on capital. We also had pressure from regulators to push up early surrender values to a point that they were uneconomic. And we realised that we would need to look around and see whether we could get a partner to work with one way or another. And it was quite a tricky exercise because we didn't want to let the marketplace know that we were looking to demutualise and find a partner. That would have caused problems for the existing business going forward. IFAs would have been reluctant to deal with us if there was uncertainty surrounding the company's future. So we tried quietly to contact potential partners and eventually we were able to set up uh, what turned into a mini auction between four potential bidders for the company and it ended up with Royal London being both the best fit for us in business terms but also offering the, the highest price. And in many ways, that's the one of the main achievements I would feel of my career, having handled that very difficult process of dressing yourself up, but being honest about it, handling the media pressure, handling the, the, the transaction and all the complications, and coming out with the results, which are actually a very good deal, both for Scottish Life and for Royal London. But probably the, with that, you realise there's a disappointment as well, because here I was as the chief executive of a company which had a, a good business environment, but needed to have a bigger partner. And suddenly we join up in a group and I find that my new chief executive is younger than I am. Yeah. <laughs> 
and a, a very capable individual. However, I, I wanted to make sure that the Scottish Life business, which was really the, 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 the new business part of Royal London, continued to develop along the lines that made sense, and happily it did. We, 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 we introduced uh, new products, new ranges. We caught, in many ways, the tide of the pensions market successfully in a number of areas. And it was only then, after being there for about uh, six years, acting at as still the general manager or the chief executive of the Scottish Life business, that it became time to move on. Mm. And at that stage, having worked effectively for one company for over 30 years, I was quite keen to see other businesses and to try and build up positions and appointments, both in insurance companies, but I thought also in other types of, of businesses. And I thought some of the experiences I had could be brought to bear and could be helpful mm. to these other companies. Mm. So that became the second stage of, of, of my career in many ways. And that's quite a difficult transition for a lot of people. You're no longer the decision maker when you move into this plural environment, for the most part. You're there to help executives. You're there to bring benefit of your experience and your advice. But ultimately, the decisions are either those of a board as a whole, or, or more generally, they're driven by the, the drive and the, the initiative of the executive team themselves. The executive team are generally going to know a lot more about the detail of every business than you will know as a non-exec. And the, you rely on their assessment of what's possible, what's practical, but in turn, you can act as a good sounding board and you can particularly at a high level discuss strategy and you've got the benefit of saying what, what you think has worked elsewhere, how you think change is going to come along and what you think is most consistent with the business's abilities in place. So I, I'm very happy to move into that, but it's not easy. You find when you start applying for non-executive type jobs, the first question you're asked is, well, what other non-executive jobs have you got? And if you, only, if you haven't got any, that's quite a difficult question to answer. Mm. And even if you only got one, that's quite a difficult question to answer. Unfortunately, people look for a safe pair of hands as a non-executive. They want to know that they understand the chemistry that works at board levels yeah. and that you're going to contribute positively. But I was fortunate. I, I built up a, a number of positions, generally in the life assurance pensions area, but not entirely in that area. I, at an early stage, I was fortunate to get an appointment as a non-executive director of the UK Debt Management Office, which is the arm's length body from the Majesty's Treasury, which issues gilts treasury bills, and generally manages the government's cash accounts and uh, its money market activities. And I find that a fascinating area to get involved with. Mm -hmm. My background from investment, particularly on, on managing guilt and fixed interest, helps. But a lot of it was to do with bringing experience of how to approach big decisions, how to make appointments, how to interview, how to bring out the strengths in staff rather than necessarily having the detailed expertise of how to make an auction more successful. And it turned out to be a, a great part of the public sector. I was impressed by the quality of the people I was working with and the commitment which they brought to that job. But also I, I was able to uh, get involved in, in pension work. One of the early appointments was to become the chairman of the GEC pension scheme. GEC was, for uh, those who were younger, the massive conglomerate of its day in the UK 
with activities in lots of growth areas like defence, aerospace, personal electronics, transport, power. It was a massive company which went through a very difficult time when, under a change of leadership, it decided to focus its activities on the growing mobile technology market. Great. Among the other appointments, two are in the, the With Profits area. I, I chair the With Profits Committee for Aegon here in Edinburgh, but also for Aviva. And they're quite different. Aviva is quite a big collection of With Profits funds. It's quite a complex uh, process to, to manage that. But I also became uh, a non-executive director of the NFU Mutual Insurance Society, and I'm now in my seventh year there. And I, I was really appointed on the basis of being a financial person, particularly in life and pensions. The NFU Mutual operates in both the general insurance and the life and pensions area, so they always need expertise, particularly in, in one area or the other. And for me, it was interesting to become exposed to general insurance for the first time up to this, all my career being life, pensions and investment. And frankly, I find the general insurance area fascinating. It's much less structured, in, in my opinion, and less well-developed than life and pensions, which are pretty well uh, researched. There's a lot of common data, whereas in general insurance, you're trying to make decisions based on a whole range of data, much of which will be your own data. And if you've got good experience in a particular area, such as the agricultural area, which any few mutual have, then you can probably uh, make better decisions. But it's a multidimensional. You're trying to handle all sorts of things like technology, weather, changing regulations, and trying to make estimates of, of mm. what pricing applies, what reserving applies to all these different lines of business. So again, it's been a very interesting way. And, interesting, and for me, particularly, as a lot of my background has been with mutual organizations, finding NFU Mutual is itself a, a big mutual. And indeed, I think it's probably one of the most mutual organizations you will find. A very close line of communication between its policyholders, particularly in the agricultural side, right up to the board level itself. So I'll pause for breath there. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. It's such a great in-depth analysis into your, into your career over the last, well, probably only the last sort of 10 to 15 years or so, but 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 that that was fantastic, and I just want to ask you, Brian, how how did you find the the transition then from from being chief executive to to moving into non exec work? I know um, a number of our listeners may well be at that point at the moment of of wanting to to move across. And you say it's quite difficult if you don't have any existing appointments or if you've only got one or two appointments. But presumably, as well, if you've got too many appointments, you risk conflict of interest. So how do you go about balancing? That. Okay. Well, I, I would start by saying you have to make an honest appraisal of what you are good at and what you're not good at, because it is a different environment. A chairing a management committee is very different from chairing an executive committee or being a member of a board as a non-executive. Management committees are there largely to take decisions which the senior manager present wants to see happen. Mm-hmm. He's happy to, that person is happy to take advice from those present but it generally is that senior manager who takes the decision. Whereas it, it, as a non-exec, you're there to contribute and you'll, you'll be part of a board. But and e- even if you're chairing uh, to some extent, you, you shouldn't really be driving the decision-making yourself. Mm. You've got to 
make sure that you get appropriate input and contributions from those who've got knowledge and expertise to bring to bear, and that in many cases, the outcome reflects a consensus opinion rather than one person's opinion. Mm. Now, if you're happy to be part of that decision-making process, and you don't mind if your preference doesn't always happen, then you can, you can be an effective non-exec. But if you're used to getting your own way and get very upset if you don't get your own way, it's probably not a career choice for you. So that's, that, that, that's the first thing I, I, I would say. And you, you've then got to go through a process of, of sorting out in your background, your experience, what is likely to appeal to other people? Where will you be able to add value? And you should try to direct your applications and your, your nominations to those areas where you think you're going to be good and you're going to be helpful. And you'll then, if you're fortunate, you'll be, your name would be put forward and you'll get interviews. And you'll find interviews at first are hard work as well. Eventually, you'll enjoy them. But if you've come from a senior position in a company where people take your word seriously and generally respect your views, it's quite a, a different mindset to go into an interview where you may be one of three or four candidates and you may think um, you, you, your name should be well known, you may think that your reputation should go before you, but actually you've got to start it from fresh and you've got to present yourself to this group of people and you've got to do so in a way which they'll be easily able to understand and they will think that you'll be a good person to work with. So, again, there's a change of mindset required if you're going to be successful in that world. And not everybody is able to make that. As I've said earlier, it does help once you've got an appointment under your belt. And by all means, take on an appointment which isn't... Um, the sort of high-level appointment you'd ultimately aspire to. It'll give you some experience. Yeah. You yeah. may also get involved in, in some charitable, um, non-commercial activities as a way of also building that experience. Yeah. And it's surprising how many people will have come through a commercial background without actually having had experience of how other organisations work yeah. or how other boards are, are run. And they'd... You have to understand some of the protocols to be able to participate properly. So it, it is a, a, a quite a learning curve, and you, you should expect that to be the case. And it may take you a few years before you, you make progress. So you've got to be patient as well. But I hope that gives you a few thoughts of what are required when you're going to make that transition. Yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. And, and and how do you find find things now? Because obviously you go from a time where one hundred percent of your efforts is being channeled into one business, but now your your time and your energy is is split across various various roles that you have. How how, how do you go about doing that? There are some practical difficulties. If you're working for an organisation and you've got a PA who handles all your inquiries and sets up your appointments and runs your calendar, and indeed. In, organizers your travel and accommodation, life can be fairly smooth. Once you move into the non-exec world, unless you recruit somebody to do that for you, it's more difficult. You, you end up having to do a lot of your own organization yeah. and you have to run your own diary. And frankly, I don't think there's any easy way around that. By the time you've explained to somebody else what you want and you've had this interaction where we couldn't get you that particular flight or we couldn't get you the accommodation you want, what do you want to do? Or you've got two clashing appointments, what do you want to do about it? 
by the time you've explained all that and talked it through, you may as well have sort of done it yourself. So it, 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 there, there is an actual side of it, which yeah. is, is a bit difficult. And you, have, and you even have the tedious business of uh, having different expense procedures from each organization you're working with mm-hmm. and having to keep track of that and having to keep your receipts and put all that forward. So that, 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 that is one of the downsides. Mm. However, the, the, the positive side of it is that you're able to see a number of organizations and generally, you'll find that you're working with people that you like working with because they're unlikely to have picked you to work with them unless they think that they're going to enjoy working with you. So vice versa, you do find yourself working with groups of people whom you're actually pleased to get to know and whom you like to see from time to time. And you enjoy the discussions, you enjoy the debates. You're able to move from one organization to another in your, in your mind. You're not... Uh, um, going to find all your mind concentrated on one organization and the big problems it has because you can get them better in context. Yeah. If an organization's got a big challenge, that's great. You'll help to sort that out. But the next day you'll be thinking about another organization and it won't dominate your thinking. So having that spread, uh, this diversified range of, of activities is actually very healthy and a really nice change from being immersed in one organization where you might be working 60-hour weeks uh, and weekends as well. And instead of that, you're, you're organising yourself better to spread across different organisations as an on-exec. Fantastic. I think that that background and insight we've got into the work that you do will be really, really beneficial as we go through and answer these questions for our listeners. Brian, before we start off, though, as we are in the insurance coffee house today, can I ask you, what, what's your coffee of choice at the start of each day? I normally take a, a, a cafetiere, I have to say, uh, black, and it's pretty strong. And uh, I, I find uh, two of those a day is great. Three is probably pushing it. By the time I get to the mid-afternoon, I'll tend to move on to tea. Yeah, uh, I suppose I, it depends on your size of your cafetiere, but um, yeah, that, that sounds like quite a lot of coffee to me. It's, well, it's, it's, it's serious, yes. yes. <laughs> no, point in, no, no, no point in just panoodling around in this. You, you want to get something which going to give you a bit of a buzz yeah exactly exactly okay well brian thank you for that to start us off then can i ask you what, what do you do personally on a daily basis that that helps set you up for a successful day well you have to plan ahead and i find that most organizations will try to send out papers for meetings about a week beforehand and certainly including uh, a weekend to give you time and the sooner you can get into the papers the better you may not want to study them in great depth first off, but you want to know what's there and you want to know what's going to require uh, more attention than others. And some of the things you'll, 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 you'll encounter in those papers, you want time to think about it. And the brain is a, is a great organ. It seems to be able to operate at different levels simultaneously. So uh, you, you may think you're doing something else like going out for a run or playing golf or whatever, but actually it's still thinking about uh, some of the technical points that were included in, in, in the papers coming up in four or five days' time. And so as you come back to look at those in advance of, of, of the paper, maybe a second time, go into more detail, you've probably got your thoughts better in order, mm. and you may not ha- have uh, come to a clear decision on, on, on everything. That's, that's, that's perfectly acceptable. But at least you know the questions you'll want to ask or the areas you want to see highlighted uh, and and some of the issues surfaced when it comes to the meeting itself. So good preparation is absolutely essential. 
there's no point turning up at a meeting where you've only had a chance to look at the papers the previous evening yeah. uh, and you've just skimmed through them. That's uh, You're not doing a service to yourself and you're certainly not doing a service to the organisation that you're, you're helping to work with. So preparation is, is, is very much the point. And you, you, if you can, there may be some points which you want to discuss with others who will be attending the meeting. And that's one of the problems, I think, that we're encountering at the moment by doing so much on virtual technology, uh, Zoom teams and so on, that if it's a, if it's a transaction that you're trying to, 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 to agree, that works very well. You can see what's going on. But if you want to have a quiet word with somebody and say, what do you think of this idea? maybe during a coffee break or whatever, you really can't do that yeah. using the virtual technology. Yeah. Uh, uh, instead, you, you have to try and work out in advance what you want to uh, view on. You have to arrange, have a phone call with somebody or contact with somebody, and that's just not so easy to organise. Mm-hmm. But it may mean that, that you still have to do that to get more detail. Or you may want, if it is something particularly technical, you may know somebody in the organisation who will be able to give you that information in advance of the meeting. And again, by all means, do that uh, rather than hold up everybody else's time by trying to turn the meeting yourself in, into an educational session. So good preparation is, is very much the, the issue. Fantastic. That, then, doesn't, that doesn't just start the day before, then that starts several days before with a, a cursory glance and then a further review in a bit more detail just to allow that time, that yeah. information to sink in and, and for you to think about it. Great. Okay, uh, Brian, we understand that in order to be a successful business leader there's there's often some adversity to overcome along the way so as well as sort of touching on your biggest achievement today what what's been the largest setback that you faced and how did you overcome that happy to say i, I don't think i can come up with a, a, a real cataclysmic setback i was very fortunate in my time in scottish life that particularly when i was in the investment area and there were other opportunities would come up. You know, I, I could I could have moved to other fund managers, for example, in the Edinburgh area, or I could have gone to, to work in the city. But uh, Scottish Life uh, were, were a good employer, and they kept giving me more interesting work to do, kept promoting me. So there they weren't really those very difficult decisions I, I had to make at the time. I, I think the what I've already alluded to was that by the time... We had completed the deal with Royal London. I then had a decision to make. Do I go and try to become uh, a senior executive in, a, in another insurance company, or do I stay on and uh, with, with a view to moving to a completely different style of career in a few years' time? And that's, the, that's what, I, what I chose to do. And in many ways, uh, I'm very happy that that's the way it's worked out. There's one thing being ambitious and you want to achieve jobs where you're going to make a difference, where you've got a lot of influence. But you've also got to try and work out what you're good at and what your real ambitions are. And perhaps one of the pieces of advice I would offer anybody is to try and work out what gives you satisfaction. And if what gives you satisfaction is probably what you're good at. And that's what you should really be focusing on. And if, uh, if you, for example, if you like problem-solving, then stick to a job which gives you difficult problems and where you get a real kick out of solving them. If you like managing other people and get bringing the best out of them, then that's the direction you should go. If you like using judgment to, to make difficult decisions where nothing is black and white and you're trying to gaze into the future and decide what the most effective strategy is, then stick to that line. And I, I felt that I enjoyed being in executive position, but also did enjoy meeting groups of people 
and being able to influence, discuss. And that's why I decided then to move into the non-executive world. Great. It's quite a natural natural progression for you rather than starting again at another insurer in a a chief executive role and and, and starting things again. Brian, uh, yeah, we we understand that, that most insurance and financial services professionals fall into the industry rather than choosing it as a career at school but you uh, you you trained as a trained as an actuary so I I presume you had that sort of focus to to be in in the financial services sector from from quite an early age but when was that when was that eureka moment well when was that light bulb moment that you knew you could be really successful in the industry well, I'll go back to my, my, my days at Cambridge. We, Cambridge University in those days had a pretty rudimentary vocational side to it or a job opportunities side to it. But I remember going to one meeting where, where a rather well-dressed who was actually came along uh, who at that time was working for Merchant Bank. And I thought, aha! Because <laughs> those days, uh, uh, Merchant Banks were the equivalent of investment banks today. Uh, they, they're really the, the, the most glamorous part of the city. I thought that, this must be a good way to get into that level of financial management. So that persuaded me to, to, to go down the, the actuarial route. Um, but I, I didn't really think that life assurance was going to be the most exciting area. Uh, until you get into it, 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 it seems a pretty dry subject. And you don't realise the interesting areas that exist within a, a life assurance company. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just the, the, the technical side. The technical side is okay. The investment side is great. A lot of the IT side works very well. The marketing, promotion is a whole new world as well. Being able to present information in a way which people will appreciate and will make them take action to persuade intermediaries that your strong points are better than the strong points of the opposition. These are all aspects of that world which I, I, I wouldn't have guessed before mm-hmm. actually joining a company and, and, and seeing it work. So I, I'm, I'm very happy to, to stay in, in that world uh, having seen the different sides and I was fortunate to be able to move around in different parts of that. Fantastic and, and during during that time did you have a, a mentor or a leader who is influential in your career development? Well a few people. Uh, um, I, I think one of the things which I appreciated is uh, coming across people who turned out to have quite strong principles, that uh, they were not just looking for a shortcut, um, a, a way to uh, get over today's problem and move on to something else tomorrow. Yeah. They wanted, say, a product or service which actually was helpful for the individual who was eventually going to be the policyholder, or they wanted to set in, in, in place a process which would last for five or ten years, they would build a computer system which wasn't just a series of, of, of short-term patches but something which w- would work and, and was going to be sustainable for a long time. And having that perspective of being able to look five, ten, or even 15 years ahead is actually very important. Most people don't do it. Mm. And one of the big strategic questions you should always ask yourself is not what's today's problem, but what would be the ideal place to be in five or ten years' time? And let's try and move in that direction, even though it's, it's going to be difficult to do so. So getting that long-term perspective was, was, was very important, having the principles to, to drive you there rather than simply trying to cut corners. And that's even if you, you may not be part of the company or you may not be in that position in, in that period where it actually bears fruit. Yes, it, 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 it applies at a pretty well all level. Be the, the team leader in an administrative area who's trying to work out the most effective way to use people's abilities 
has a, has much the same problem uh, as the as the chief executive was trying to decide between different lines of business. Brian, we've 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 had a good look back into into your career in, in the past, but now if I can just ask ask you to look forward over the next sort of three to five years, how how do you see the insurance and financial services market developing, and and what do you think leaders should be doing to adapt so they can be successful? Well, I would start by saying the insurance market is very wide. It isn't just one sector. Uh, it covers a lot of different activities. Uh, I think the, the general insurance market uh, remains a very exciting place. That, that, uh, but to, to some extent, general insurance is always required, but the way in which it's provided, the way its risks are assessed, the way that cover is, is priced, the way cover is defined, and the, the way you can react to changing demands. Uh, uh, we, we have issues today which weren't thought of even 10 years ago, like uh, data protection, for example, which need some form of insurance cover, but exactly what shape that should take is very difficult. And particularly, how do you estimate what the claims experience is going to be for a new and expanding area? I think that there's, a, there's a lot in that which, which is going to be exciting and interesting. I think the, the need for long-term savings is just going to be as strong as ever. The range of instruments available and the ways in which these can be packaged is going to grow. And there may also be within that a bit of a reversion to some of the older ideas. I think with profits, even if the term is not widely recognised as a good thing these days, the idea still has a lot to offer a lot of ordinary savers. And particularly when we have volatile financial conditions, as we've been having this year in 2020, do people really want to be trusted to make the the decision of when they should be putting their money in, when should they be taking it out, when should they be switching from one sector to another? No, generally, most people do not want that decision. And having something which takes away those peaks and troughs from your investment experience is quite an attractive product. And I'd say... Whether it's called with profits going forward or whether it's called something else remains to be seen. But I think there, there's room for that sort of instrument and that would, that would be popular for long-term savings. And the whole trend has been to move more of the responsibility for savings down to the individual and away from big players like the state or companies. And whether it's, and that, that extends to protection as well. So there, there's a need for greater protection in various issues like protecting your interests and your family's interests in the event of serious illness as well as well as death. There are different types of protection which people will need. I think that will be an expanding area. How you actually access the people who need it mm-hmm. in a way which is cost effective, which provides them with fair information is a challenge, but it is necessary. So I think that there are big opportunities in, in the big corporate end, in the the retail general insurance, but also in, in the long-term savings and particularly in, in pensions provision. Yeah, and yeah. it'll it'll keep us all very busy for a long time to come. It will be, especially as the uh, pension age is going to be going up and up over the next few years. It gives people more time to uh, contribute to that pot. Yeah, and, and that itself is actually part of the solution as well as part of the challenge, that uh, as people have longer working lives, they won't be doing the same job all, all that time. Uh, they certainly won't be with the same employer all that time, but the nature of their jobs will change as well. And I think that's quite a healthy thing, just as I find it healthy moving from an, an executive role in, into the non-executive world. I think you'll find uh, lots of people be quite happy to have a challenging job for a period, 
which requires a lot of their time and effort. But as they get older, they want to be able to have more say in, in when they work, uh, what they're going to work at. And part of the, 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 the trade-off there will be perhaps lower remuneration. Yeah. But yeah. That, that's part of be, having greater flexibility and having a system which accommodates all these wider range of choices is going to be the challenge. But I think it'll come down to individual products in the whole rather than company-led products or state-led products. Fantastic. Brian, we've, we've reached the end of our first round of uh, questions. The, the next round, as our listeners will know, is the espresso round. As it's short, sharp and straight to the point. So are you ready for the espresso round? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I will try to be succinct. The espresso round. Brian, what is your favourite success quote? I quite like the Gary Player quote, who uh, I think he, uh, his caddy said to him something along the lines of, uh, that was a lucky shot. And Player said back to the caddy, it's a funny thing, you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I think that there's a lot in that. There's a little substitute for hard application and focus, keeping your mind on the job, and you will do the job better. I 100% agree. I think it's a, it's a great quote, and it's actually... It's one I actually use quite a lot on the golf course as well. A fortunate, fortunate bounce off the off the links. It's uh, one, one to always give your playing partners. What is the number one thing you see holding insurance professionals back from being more successful? I would go back to one of the, the points I made earlier, that you have to try and make an honest assessment of your own abilities. And don't try to do something which you think looks really impressive, but... It's not within your range of abilities. Do the things that you do well, and you'll probably find the things that give you satisfaction are the things that you do well, and try to steer yourself towards those those jobs. Don't put yourself as a square peg into a round hole. Mm. It it doesn't work. I agree with the sentiments. I I think that there's there's a great parallel there with hiring new staff into your team. It's about having that right fit right from the start so you can empower them rather than trying to change them into... Something yes. you need need them to be for that. Yeah, you, you you'll generally not be able to change somebody's personality, so don't try. Don't even try. No, that's that's exactly right. Now, just for our for our listeners, the, the next couple of questions we're we're going to be talking from a perspective of the NFU Mutual and Brian's work with with them. So, Brian, if I can can start off just by asking how how you drive the standards of the industry forward at the NFU. Well, the, the, the mutual is a company with very high standards already. And as, as a mutual, it, it can act purely in the interests of its policyholders. Yeah. And it can take a long-term view. It, it's, it's a well-financed, well-reserved company. So it doesn't have to cut corners. It doesn't have to find ways in which you can chip away at a, at a claim, for example. It can be very fair, and it tends to do that. And it, it, one of the, the great things I find there is it has a, a, a relationship with its suppliers, which they, it tries to make it a partnership. It doesn't try to squeeze the last bit of juice mm-hmm. out of everybody who's supplying services to it, whether it's things like uh, uh, car repairs or, or whatever. It's trying to make a partnership which will work for both parties on the basis that if it's profitable for both parties, then that partnership will strengthen and there'll be give and take. If you start off in an antagonistic way and you keep going that way, you're eventually going to hurt each other just as madly. And what does the NFU do there to develop talent and enhance the chances of of people becoming successful business leaders of the future? It invests very heavily in its people. 
that's uh, and it we, every year uh, we take part in a Gallup poll, which is all about uh, staff engagement, and uh, it, it is easily one of the best uh, companies in the UK, and it stands comparison on an international basis on the level of staff engagement, and it does that by taking care to assess each member of staff both within teams and within a wider picture to provide training opportunities and to encourage staff to take training. Often employers will provide training opportunities, but they don't really want people to take them up very seriously because it might take them away from the day job. So you've got to really mean what you say when you say, please think about this training. It can be internal so that you're, you're developing your knowledge of, of how the, the mutual itself works, or it can be external by signing up for the various external qualifications which, which exist both in the, in, the, in the insurance area and in, in the pensions area. And then you plot people's paths, and you, you have set aside time to discuss the structure down to the administrative team level as well as the, uh, the senior level. At, at the board level, we will look through... The, the management teams, and we'll get an explanation of how we see people developing, what will be the cover if somebody goes wrong, if somebody gets either leaves a company or, or, or is unwell or whatever. How would we see a particular area developing in terms of the need for more staff? Who are the people you would move into that and so on? It, it, it is all a matter of taking that responsibility for looking after staff very seriously. It's no, you know, the, people always tell you that staff are our most important asset, but you, you have to actually make that work. Yeah, and combining the brain power and talents of your staff is the most difficult task, but it's also the most rewarding task if you get it right. Yeah, it's great. It's great to hear what the NFU are doing on that front, Brian. This this might might be a slightly difficult question for you for you to answer, but if if you woke up tomorrow morning with all of the knowledge and experience that you've you've amassed over the years, but the companies you're involved with weren't there, how would you go about starting your your career again? With, with the knowledge that you have now, yeah, I, I would I would answer a different question than the one you've asked. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good political trick, in the sense that I mean, given the age I've reached, if everything was to fall tomorrow, I'm not sure I would try to build up the same portfolio again mm-hmm. uh, and put all that effort into it. But if I was starting again as as, as a young person, I would say first of all, put a lot of uh, work into getting qualifications, and don't. Pretend that you can you, you you can manage without them. They become a differentiating factor at every stage of of, of, of your career. I would probably, uh, if I'd gone on the same route uh, and uh, trained as an actuary, I'd probably find general insurance the most interesting area alongside mm-hmm. investment. I think the the potential for the general insurance market is still enormous. Yeah, and the 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 ability to, to add order to what is still difficult area to bring structure to opens up a whole whole wide range of opportunities and if you've got the ability to also communicate well as well as enjoying the technical side if you've got the ability to work with other people and get the best out of them if you've got the ability to explain to others why they should be using your services and your products these are all strengths that that would open up a lot of doors to people within the general insurance area Mm. so that's probably where, where i would focus but by all means if anybody comes up with it with a new idea or a new position, treat it seriously. Investigate it. Mm-hmm. It may be an offer within your own company, or it may be an offer from another, from another company. Keep your eyes open and don't be afraid to, to to change. 
employers quite like people who've got wider experience, who've got different perspectives to bring to bear. So don't be afraid to move yourself. And you'll probably find that the change itself, it's invigorating for you. Having to see things from a different perspective, having to find new ways of approaching particular talent challenges, but also what you can bring by way of experience to other people is very valuable. So don't be frightened of change and take it seriously, but go where you think you'll enjoy the work and you'll get satisfaction from it. Thank you, Brian. I think that's incredibly invaluable advice. We've reached the end of our time today. But Brian, if I could just ask you for, for one piece of closing advice for us to finish with, how would people go about contacting you after the show? I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably the best way. Uh, if, I suppose that the don't be, a, don't be in any way um, reticent about saying that you enjoy the insurance world. It's, you may think it's a difficult conversational piece at a dinner party or in a cocktail party, but that's because people don't understand the, the real attractions of, of the insurance world. Mm-hmm. So stand up for yourself and be proud to be in the insurance industry. Yeah, yeah. amen to that. Amen to that. Brian, thank you so much for joining us in the Insurance Coffee House today. Really, really enjoyed hearing from you and learning an awful lot, actually. And during this time that we've had together, both at executive level, but I think a lot of our listeners who might be contemplating that and dipping their toes into the non-exec, um, non-exec director roles will be really, really interested in, in what you've had to say today. So, so thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure, Nick. Thank you very much. You've been a, a very gentle interviewer. <laughs> thank you. I take that. I take that as a compliment and to all our listeners out there, wherever you are the world we thank you for listening to our show today if you have enjoyed this episode please do leave us a review on itunes or your podcast app and make sure that you download and subscribe to the show so that you receive each one of our episodes directly into your inbox each week until next time i've been nick hoadley this has been the insurance coffee house and take care you've been listening to the insurance coffee house with nick hoadley join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader available to download or subscribe now